All right, listeners, welcome back to Rhetorically Speaking. Um, This episode that you're about to hear was originally intended to air mid-month as bonus material to February's episode where we discussed Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing. Um, And it was designed really as um, a kind of light-hearted take on what we stand to gain when we just slow down and take her message to heart, really. So the team over here at Rhetorically Speaking decided that we were going to test this theory out, and we assigned ourselves a fieldwork assignment, um, and we would report back on how that went, and we would each craft a little mini story to share with you. And as uh, we've spent the last month editing the footage, um, we've both been succumbed to and overwhelmed by um, everything that's been going on, as you can imagine, with uh, COVID-19. With that in mind, as we shelter in place and social distance and do the kinds of things that the shifts in our lifestyle and our habits really um, collectively, I I take hope that we... Um, are going to get through this and see a brighter tomorrow. But also, I'd like to offer this episode really as an invitation. I do think our final message in the outro, and you won't hear a a formal outro from me again at the end of this episode, so I do hope you listen all the way through and enjoy it. But um, what's to come is really a, a collection of four people's experiences when they do press pause And in re-listening to the footage during editing, it reminded me um, actually what a great privilege and opportunity that is. So even though you may feel disjointed and like your life is in chaos and that you're kind of swimming in a lot of questions and uncertainty, we want to offer this as an invitation and a gift and hopefully a welcomed Um, distraction that we actually feel is quite timely and important. So over the course of the next 15 or so minutes, we're going to invite you to just listen to the stories of our exercises in paying attention. And again, in the midst of everything that's going on around us, we hope that this um, can be an invitation for you to do some of the same in the coming weeks. So stay healthy, stay safe, and without further ado, here's our bonus episode on how to do nothing. All right, so here I am outside the Windover Center on Stanford campus. Um, It's kind of far from where I work, so... It never feels like it's on the way to anything that I am doing. As I'm walking, you're probably hearing my feet on the gravel, (laughs) right? It's like a kind of zen garden-y feel around here. Lots of open, exposed rocks and bare birch trees and stripped, paneled wood. It's beautiful. There's definitely no denying that. But... 
I'm curious, right? Because I've been trying to do this meditation practice somewhat successfully, but it's been really hard. Uh, it's been challenging for me to prioritize this idea of having just sort of space for the sake of space. But, you know, I'm willing to give anything a try. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find the entrance here and I'll report back. So I just spent some time at the Windover Center and I just couldn't get into it. I think when I'm at home meditating and I've deliberately decided to do nothing, I'm not thinking about my space. I'm kind of letting the space disappear from me. And I feel like in some ways at Windover with these beautiful wood paneled floors and epic abstract paintings of birds and light bursting through the canvas. Um, I was so aware of the construction of it. I couldn't help, I couldn't ever turn off this critic hat that thought someone's designed this space to be optimized, to do nothing. And that defeated the purpose of it to me. And maybe that's not fair, because I kept thinking while I was there, why does being in this beautiful, glass-walled, wood-floored, naturally-lit space, why does this feel so much worse to me than being in a park, or being out on a hike, or just sitting in any of the beautiful outdoor spaces on campus and I guess I just couldn't get over that this was something this was something someone put resources into right they could have put resources into so many of the other parts of the campus community and we choose to create the space that doesn't really solve the problems it intends to solve right because at the heart of Odell's book, it's not really about just having spaces that are for nothing. It's about creating that space actively and giving oneself A, permission to be in that kind of space, or B, fighting for the right to have access to that space. I remember feeling very skeptical when I first learned about this center because it seemed like kind of this virtue signaling, empty gesture on the part of the university, right? Like, hey, here's a place where you can have quiet, right? Like, what is that really going to do to reduce the stress of our labor and our time and our staffed resources? And so this felt like sort of a privileged person's perception of what it might mean to solve a mental health problem or what it might mean to give someone space, right? If we're stressed, if you need space, hey, just create some version of the solarium I have in my five million dollar mansion and plop it in the middle of campus and see what happens. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't get over how deeply cynical I feel about it. Um, and I really tried. It was tranquil and beautiful. The space was sort of perfectly temperature constructed. Uh, everything about it felt so pristine. And maybe something is better than nothing. Maybe having a moment is better than having none. 
to do nothing, to sit with nothing, even if there's something a little constructed and artificial about it. And yet I couldn't let go. That's the sound of chickens on the O'Donohue Family Stanford Educational Farm. Located on the western edge of the Stanford campus, the farm teaches sustainable agricultural practices to Stanford students and the broader community. Having just read How to Do Nothing by Ginny O'Dell for Rhetorically Speaking's February episode, the farm seemed like a place on campus that embodied many of the book's principles. So in between dropping my kids off at school and a mid-morning meeting, I biked over to the farm to volunteer a little of my time and to check out the space. This is my first time volunteering, so I'm not quite sure where to go. The farm itself is a fenced-off space of about six acres. The fence is technically there to keep out the deer, but walking through the gate feels like stepping into another world. The sounds of campus, traffic, construction, students rushing past on their bikes, are replaced by bird songs and the crunch of the gravel path under your feet. Lavender and daffodils grow along the edge of the path, and rows of vegetables and flowers stretch out in both directions. After signing in to volunteer, I washed my hands, put on a pair of gloves, and set out to harvest nettles. Yeah, you heard that right, nettles, the plant covered in fine, stinging hairs. If you touch fresh nettles with bare skin, you can get a nasty sting. But cooking nettles deactivates the stinging hairs, making it safe to eat. Nettle tea is commonly used as a traditional medicine, and on the farm, they like to use nettles to make gnocchi. The row that I was supposed to harvest just looked like a wild mass of green to my untrained eye. The nettles aren't intentionally planted on the farm. Unlike the neat rows of kale and garlic in the neighboring beds, the nettles were growing wild mixed in with the oat and peas that had been planted to build up the soil over the winter. But another volunteer crouched down and showed me a nettle plant. Its jagged leaves and prickly stems contrasted with the skinny oat leaves and the larger, smooth-edged pea leaves. Now looking down the row, the nettles popped. My attention had been refocused, and now they were all I could see. With this new perspective, I set to work harvesting the nettles. I cut the tender young stalks with a small, sharp knife and placed them into a plastic bucket. My attention shifted between finding the nettles amongst the sea of green and making sure that I didn't brush up against any nettles with the patch of bare skin between my gloves and jacket. The other volunteers worked around me. While there were a few student volunteers, most were members of the surrounding community, retired from their jobs and with time to visit the farm on a Tuesday morning. We chatted with each other as the birds chirped around us. Before I knew it, it was time to head back to the main part of campus and to get on with the rest of my day. I left with a new appreciation for nettles and also for the community of people that had formed around the farm. As I was heading back out to my bike, I ran into Patrick Archie, the farm director. I took a moment to ask him about this community and the important function that the farm provides to Stanford. Here's what he had to say. 
especially when you're studying something that has a real hands-on component to actually be able to practice it, uh, is you, you integrate your learning. And so um, I think having this form on campus as an educational resource is just amazing. And what's wonderful is we got engineering students that for three years now have been working on designs um, that are being implemented with partners in India, with small farmers on uh, food dehydration to be able to, to dry food so they can get it to market and um, uh, lots of interesting projects like that. It's, uh, it's so it's just wonderful to see people connecting, you know, who might not otherwise connect over kind of a shared sense of purpose yeah. on the farm. Hi, this is Jordan with Rhetorically Speaking. My field assignment for um, this week's mini-sode was to go to a popular congregation spot during passing time uh, between classes at Stanford University. I chose sitting here in Memorial Quad, this fieldwork assignment, because I think it was really, it would be really interesting to think about where our minds go, where our attention goes in between two different classes, or before a class, or after a class. So, it is currently 9.45 in the morning. It's a beautiful Tuesday. Um, I'm listening to the birds right now. It's actually quite calming. Um, maybe I'm taking, taking note from how to do nothing. But, yeah, I think, I think I'm just going to stay here for a little bit and listen. This might be the first time I think I've ever spent more than one minute just listening and not being distracted by music or a podcast, which is weird because I normally like to think of myself as someone that, you know, you know, values attention and intention. And I've walked to class partly because I lost my bike key, but partly because I like to have, you know, some time in the morning to frame my day and to think clearly, but I'm always listening to something still. I'm always listening to music or listening to a book. I'm never listening to my surroundings, and I'm doing that now, and it's it's really peaceful. So I might have to ditch the AirPods for a little bit. kind of like this. One thing that might surprise you if you come visit Stanford's campus is the amount of bikes that are everywhere and maybe it's a west coast thing in general i'm from the midwest i don't know if this is this is normal here but everyone has a bike and everyone bikes everywhere and it's almost weird if you don't and to me that i think says something about the general headspace of productivity and efficiency that kind of pervades campus here and Silicon Valley in general, which obviously we're involved by. But this bike thing, it gets to me because this crave to be productive, it's, 
it's enchanting and it's kind of seductive in a way. I, I understand the appeal. I think at least the psyche from a student's perspective is, is worth thinking about. Thus, everything must be efficient. You bike everywhere. Your coffees with friends turn to networking opportunities like that. I think it's just an obligation to be efficient here. And and it does it does entice someone that's not used to this. Um, and I think that's that's the danger of it, right? Is that you can keep measuring yourself against material things and you'll be rewarded with other material things. I think says something to what people think about productivity and, and how our relationships to efficiency are often unhealthy. So some kids are starting to come out from class now, and I expected to get a lot of weird looks for just talking in the microphone in the middle of, middle of passing time, but honestly, like, no one's looking at me at all. I think everyone's listening to music or talking to people, which makes sense, but no one's listening to what's around them, and it's interesting. And it's interesting because I think there would be a lot much more happiness here if people just took time away from from thinking so intently about productivity and efficiency because if you are trapped in your own head of productivity and your own space of productivity then I begin to question whether or not the productivity is even productive in the right ways right I think that programming can be undone and I think it in a lot of ways, we would gain a lot from its undoing. Efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. I think it tells a lot about what we value. What we do in our free time and what we wish to actually be attentive towards. I think we're losing an opportunity to just surround ourselves with our environment. And I think a lot of ways that's sad, you know? And I think a refocusing of that could be a benefit to a lot of people, at least people I know, at least to me. I've never been one to, to meditate. I, I've tried it, tried my hand at it once or twice. Didn't work out for me. I, I think I'm too too wired to do it, um, to do it without concerted effort at least. Um, but I think this is the closest I'll get to meditating. I think just being here, doing absolutely nothing, listening, putting my attention towards random things, the, the landscaper sweeping the, the leaves off of, off of the ground, the, the family taking photos in front of, in front of the statues, in front of memorial church, like random things that I have, I gain nothing from paying attention to, nothing in the material sense at least. I think putting my attention towards that resets it in a way and I feel more refreshed and I think a lot of this obviously comes from 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 Jenny O'Dell's book and I'm really grateful to have read it because I think it's it's provided the the basis for a lot of a lot of these thoughts and a lot of these realizations that that we're having together I don't know sitting here in Memorial Quad it's really really nice and I think that's 
that's the conclusion I want to take away from this. This is really nice. And I didn't know there were so many birds here. And I think Jenny Odell would be happy to hear that. This close, it's like two meters away. You can touch a star. So, Jameson, when you look at the stars, how does it? What do you feel? I feel really small when I look at the little dipper. When you look at the stars, what do you feel? Um, I don't know. It just feels good. This last month, I took my son to the Dianza Community College Planetarium. It was a field trip for his preschool. And they were talking about the moon and its lunar cycle and how it waxes and wanes. And then they ended the field trip with a little surprise. They threw up a star map of all the constellations as we would see them in the night sky. And one of the really cool things was watching the stars move over time. And in that process of playing with the stars and thinking about stars and star maps, we would be given what they called this imagination picture. So they would say, look, here's a cluster of stars. What do you see? Do you see a person? This is Orion. And it was just this random cluster of stars, but they would then throw up this imagination picture behind it. And suddenly we would see, you know, Orion, this big brave hunter with his belts and his archery and his legs. Orion's belt is right up there. Yeah, I see it. And then we were being asked to look at the colors of the stars, to look at the star Betelgeuse in his shoulder. Hey, Jameson, what was the name of the bright star in Orion's shoulder, the yellow star? It's all the way up there. What was his name? Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse. And what was the name of his other star? Rigel. Rigel. Very good. Betelgeuse. And then we came home, and my son was obsessed with drawing stars and constellations. He also wanted to then go out every night uh, for about two weeks and just stare at the stars. Jameson, where's Orion? Where's Canis Major? Oh, he's lower in the sky. Do you see Canis Major, how low he is? And where's Canis Minor? Oh, look at that big star over there, Jameson. Do you remember which one that big bright star is? And it struck me that I was experiencing this field trip while reading Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, that paying really close attention to stars and how they move in time across the sky is an interesting exercise in attention. And I have to say that watching um, my son was a really sweet moment, right? It was really interesting to see him come to learn and understand the night sky and to develop a vocabulary and a capacity for talking to it and seeing it and knowing it through these exercises in paying attention. He's look, he moved all the way to up there. He moved? Yeah. Where did he used to be? He used to be closer to our roof. Why does Orion's belt? Orion's belt is right up there. Yeah, I see it. What do you see? I can touch But one of the concepts that jumped out for me was this idea of the sky as a collage. And that 
it's really an assault on a one-point perspective, right? It's so big and it's so vast that it requires you to look at it multiple times. You have to pan your eyes across the sky because you can't take it in in all of its immensity in one shot. And together, these images work to create a kind of mental collage in my head of what the night sky is. And did Canis Major or Canis Minor have an important star? Serious. Serious. <laughs> Can you guys find anything else from the star maps? Looking at the sky over and over each night, it also really started to ground us in our idea of space. There was a moment where we did this exercise at home, looking at the stars in the Bay Area on the peninsula, where there's a lot of um, light pollution and backlighting. And then we took a family trip over the weekend to Tahoe, which is a couple hundred miles away, northeast. And the first thing my son noticed was that all the constellations were in a different spot. Orion. He's Look, he moved all the way to up there. He moved? Yeah. Where did he used to be? He used to be closer to our roof. Why does it And this was also observed because there were so many more stars to look at. Oh, look at that big star over there, Jameson. Do you remember which one that big bright star is? I don't, I don't remember seeing him. Is he? Oh, look. Wait, hold on. So if this is Orion and that's his belt, where's Taurus? Can we find Taurus? Yeah, it's the bull? Yeah, kind of behind the tree. It's right here. Oh, you can see... The V. Yeah. Oh, wow. He's moved so much. And Pleiades. You know, moving to the mountains decentered the sky, and we had to look hard to find the main stories and the main stars. But we were also open to those experiences, right? And we were able to say, hey, look over there. What's that cluster? What's that called? Let's go figure that one out. And his capacity to understand the sky grew as we took on and learned new stars and new constellations. And as the sky opened up, um, we felt like it was less fixed. It was this moment of insight and awe attained really only by an intentional exercise in repeated attention to the sky for nothing else than to take delight in a familiar star. You He's see different. The big over over here. Oh, the big dipper. Takes the whole tree. Oh, yeah, there's the big dipper. Wow. We couldn't see him a week ago, remember? The big dipper, we couldn't see it. Oh, yeah. Oh, look. Wait, hold on. So if this is Orion. And that's yeah, that new thing. Do you see the little dipper? Oh, yeah. It's a little dipper up there. Yeah. Small. It's like so tiny. Chapter 4 of How to Do Nothing talks about the power of seeing and this relationship between representation and perception and point of view. And that it's sticky and pliable, really. And that understanding can be sharpened through paying really close attention to something. So as we close this mini-sode, we want to invite you to engage in an exercise in attention. Where's your favorite spot to sit at lunch? What's your favorite thing to look at? What brings you joy? Sit and pay attention and look and look again and see if you can look without boredom, but instead with curiosity and openness.